Welcome. This is All the Fuck In, a podcast from two entrepreneurs about showing up for social justice in your work. This isn't your typical capitalist-focused entrepreneurial business podcast. There are already plenty of those. We're here because we've been craving voices rooted in activism, justice, and integrity with those values. These are conversations about all things business and entrepreneurship, but from a radical perspective that says we don't have to choose between social justice values and being successful in our work. This won't be a place where we claim to have all the answers. Our intention is to offer guidance and support while also encouraging our listeners to discover and live into more questions. We believe these conversations require ongoing practice and a consistent dedication to unlearning. If you're ready to go all the fuck in on what matters most while creating an abundant life, you're in the right place. And a quick note on our content, we believe self-care is radical and non-negotiable in the work of both justice and entrepreneurship. So some of these conversations include mention of trauma, both from a systemic and often racialized perspective and in relationship to experiences like sexual violence. We hope you do what you need to take care of yourself while listening, even if that means pausing and returning to an episode at another time or skipping it altogether. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I feel like my voice hasn't been on the podcast for like episodes now. So it's it's good to be here back in this virtual space. Um, we have some very exciting guests, uh, exciting for us, at least. We've, we've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Um, would either of you like to go ahead and introduce yourselves, names, pronouns, any identities you want to share? Are you you're you're pointing at me, Gemma? <laughs> OK. Um, First, it's really sweet to be in this space. Thanks for inviting us. And Chema, it's really nice to be in space with you in this way. I'm excited for the conversation. Uh, So my name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. My pronouns are she and her. Um, Other aspects of my social location, I'm Black. I am middle class. I'm a Southerner. I live in Winston-Salem, which is the ancestral land of the Catawba, the Saponi, the Cherwa, the Tutelo, the Cherokee and many other tribes. Um, I'm cisgender, female, um, heterosexual. Um, I have a home and I have a master's degree and I'm a citizen um, and many other, I'm able, many other physically able, other identities. And often you ask about astrology. I don't mm-hmm. know if you wanted us to share that. Okay. I would love that. I am a Leo son. Um, a Cancer rising and an Aquarius moon, and it's Scorpio season right now. And my North Node is in Scorpio, mm. and my South Node is in Taurus, and my Venus is in Virgo, which causes all sorts of stuff for me. Um, and Chiron is in Aries. So that's that's what I know right now about my astrology, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Michelle. Michelle, would you also share how you would currently describe your work in the world? Oh, yeah, that was probably part of this. Um, <laughs> I am an author. I have a, a um, another book coming out in April about healing and community. I'm an intuitive healer, a space holder, facilitator, circle holder, dismantling racism, um, educator, racial equity trainer a yoga teacher and practitioner, 
And I feel like many other things in all of my work as it evolves feels like it's centered on healing the the whole, the collective. Thanks, Michelle. And Thank for you. our listeners, um, we interviewed Michelle, I think it was episode three or four. So if you want to go back and listen to that conversation, I'm sure it will inform this one that we're having today as well. Yeah. Emma, take it away. Okay. Um, my name is Tema Oaken, and uh, I am, I use she, her pronouns. I am white. I am old or older or elder. I am wealthy. I am able-bodied, cisgender, um, cisgender female. I have no idea what my sexuality is. I am, uh, I, I, I have a home. I'm just following Michelle's model. I'm trying to remember everything she said. <laughs> uh, I have a degree. I have a, um, I have a PhD. And I just want to be really clear that anything I know has nothing to do with the fact that I have a PhD. And I am so, so clear about that. And it's not, again, it's not to dishonor anyone who feels like their PhD does confer uh, wisdom. It's just, I want to be clear that mine does not. <laughs> um, so uh, it's more that it gave me some certification that allowed me to move in spaces that I wouldn't have been able to move in otherwise. Um, what it, and in, in terms of my work in the world, it's a really good question. Uh, I quit teaching. I've been teaching all of my adult life in one form or another, either in community community based settings uh, or in formal classrooms, undergraduate uh, graduate doctoral classrooms. And I stopped doing. I've, I've taught was faculty at Duke for the last seven years. And I stopped teaching in April. And um, trying to, uh, as I sort of more officially move into elder status, I'm really trying to figure out what my role is now. And if I was to describe, I can describe my vow and my vow in terms of how I'm gonna show up these days is that I really wanna show up in and with and from a place of deep and fierce love. And I don't mean that in any kind of Pollyannish way, or as my one of my teachers says, I'm not talking about a Hallmark card marshmallow soft love. <laughs> I'm talking about, I think, I think, I think coming from a place of love is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I'm trying to learn to ask the question, what does love require? And sometimes it requires, or what does love want in this situation? And sometimes it it wants boundaries, and sometimes it wants me to be um a truth teller in ways that are going to cause people distress. And sometimes um, it, call, it calls for deep compassion. So I know how I'm supposed to be. I'm not, I'm not at all sure what I'm supposed to be doing as the world is on fire. So I'm in a period of discernment and hoping that some answers will come. It's interesting you. you say all that, Tema, because as Tristan and I were chatting before we um, jumped on Zoom with the two of you, we were like, yeah, I wonder like at this stage of life for, for both of you, you know, what you see as your role moving forward, because I know social change roles evolve as we evolve and depending on the season of life we're in. Um, and I don't mean to start us on a future focused question, but I am kind of curious because you two have been doing anti-racism facilitation for such a long time, way before it was popular and common knowledge that people, you know, it's not a term people knew about that much. Let me say white people knew that much until a few years ago. 
Um, and in the last few years, obviously things have shifted so much. So I'm curious what you see is, if not your future in this work, like the future of this work. Um, big question. Michelle, I want you to go first every time. <laughs> Someone's like, Michelle. <laughs> um, I think the first thing that came to, well, comes to mind and heart is that um, this is work and it's also a practice. And so, and it, right, it's an ongoing practice. I was reflecting on what you shared, Tima, about what you were learning about your your practice, right? Your work, how to show up and your vow seems connected to a practice that you have and a commitment mm -hmm. to the, the collective, right? And um, I feel like that orientation is, um, it resonates, it's how I'm thinking about my, my work, right? Or what it is that I do when I show up in space um, interpersonally or, or in a group or as I make decisions that affect other people. It's like, this isn't a one-time thing. If I'm here for our collective good, then it means that I need to commit to that in some way. And it's going to look different, but in some way, each, you know, each moment, it also means I need a practice. I'll say that's what I understand about the work too, like, or, you know, I'm using work and practice anonymously here, but um, that I need some practice. I think we need some practice to stay centered as the world is burning in the way Timo was talking about. And that also feels different to me and, and, you know, inviting activists into embodied practice. I didn't start hearing about that until a decade ago, 15 years ago, and really in the last five years. Right. And so I think, even though I imagine some people were thinking about that and practicing that before, but I think we need to understand this is an ongoing practice and we need something, a practice to center and ground us. And that's part of what I understand at this point at age 47, which I didn't understand when I started working with Dismantling Racism Works um, or Change Works was the name of it at that time. And, and I think finally what I'll say is there's so much individualism and like ego in this. <laughs> And I'm not saying I'm not I'm not included in that. And it it we're not gonna we're not gonna make it as individuals. Like I'm very clear, like we will only make it with one another. And um, I see some sort of replication of like the ego in how people are doing this work, and and it concerns me. Is what I'll say. I think it's just it's. I'm not saying I know how to do it, um, right? Although I do think I. The work that I do, I, I think I do it well. Um, and I'm learning all of the time. So I want to say that too. I just feel like there needs to be more focus on removing the ego from it. Um, I don't mean like we don't have egos. We do and they help us do stuff. I just mean the like centering that I see people doing it themselves as they do this feels like it's kind of toxic. And um it feels like such a departure from the way I came into the work, which was to I attended a training. Tema was one of the co-facilitators and Brie Carlson was another facilitator. And we, I was sent there, um, an organization sent me to this training and then Tema and I talked and eventually I, I sort of trained up. And I was part of a collective when I trained up. I wasn't like, I'm Michelle Johnson doing this. I was part of a big collective of mentors and teachers and comrades and people who knew way more than I did, right? And I just, there's something that feels different about 
how people are doing this work now that feels like it's a departure from how I came into it. And I think we need more of how I came into it if we're going to make it through this. So that's my, these are my thoughts. What Michelle's not saying is that her first training experience with us was when Brie couldn't get to the training. Um, and so we just said, Michelle, start training. And she, she did. It was awesome. Um, okay. So, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, a couple of weekends ago, I, I, I'm part of a Zen Peacemaker program. And as part of that program, we did a three-day street retreat, which is just living on the streets and bearing witness in a very awkward and sort of full of contradictions practice. And one of the things that I came away with, it's, it's something I already knew, and it was just reinforced very deeply, which is that every single institution in this country is so deeply broken. And the people who lead those institutions are so deeply, for the most part, so deeply confused. And you know, I can't think of, I can't think of a institution that's actually working for the people that they say they're serving. You know, and I, um, you know, the evidence of that is everywhere. And and on the street retreat, the evidence was that you know we have a culture that makes people homeless. Um, and then we make it illegal for them to sleep on the street. And so we have hundreds of people who aren't getting enough sleep. Um, and then, and it made me think about how we define mental illness. And the people that I met on the street, the, those who were generous enough to talk with us, uh, would, you know, our institutions would describe them as mentally ill. I would say they're, they're in touch with the reality of their own, while the people who run the institute the real mental illness is Congress. The real mental illness is you know, our Supreme Court. The real mental illness is the energies that we see um, as racialized capitalism keeps undermining any ability we have to stay in connection with each other. So I completely agree with Michelle. I just think this is uh, the, the practice that's called for while the world is on fire is what can we do to stay connected to each other even when we are annoying the crap out of each other even when um, those of us who are white are are out of our conditioning, you know, causing harm, even when um, any of us, all of us, including including all, all racialized groups, are acting out of trauma, you know, it's like how do we stay connected and not allow um, allow the culture to divide us. And you know, I think about this, I've been thinking a lot about class lately, and I've been thinking about how, and this is a huge generalization, um, and has some truth in it, which is that one of the ways that class works within the white group and across race groups is that those of us who are wealthy or upper middle class are taught that if we're uncomfortable, we walk away. You know, if we don't like something, we'll just walk away. We'll, get, we'll quit, we'll get another job, we'll leave our family, we'll do, you know, and I'm not taking choice away from working in poor people, but sometimes working in poor people don't have that choice. And so they have, again, huge generalization, but I'm generalizing that working in poor people have a greater skill at staying connected across conflict. And so we need that, you know, we just need that. So that's part of the practice and this sort of vow I talk about the, the how do I continue to act from a place of love when I see so much harm being done. and. Um, and even the the little bit of harm that I experienced from this culture, you know, it's just uh, 
yeah. So it's, I think that's the, for me, the future is, I, I was listening to another podcast and I need to remember the name of it, but they were talking about the skills that are needed during, for apocalypse. And the, the point that this author was making, who I'm sorry, I don't remember their name, but they were making the point that it's not that we need people who know, we do need people who know how to farm and grow food and build things, but we also need people who know how to discern, who know how to keep people connected, who know how to lead and facilitate groups to make wise decisions, because in apocalypse, the culture is going to push us to, you know, more hatred and more fear. So, yeah, so I think it's this, pra this practice that Michelle referenced that we just need to, to to uh, deepen our practice uh, and I completely agree about the ego piece and understand that um, our ego needs are not actually going to serve us even as they don't serve the collective. So how do, how do we develop a practice of thinking about what's good for the collective, not just what's good for us? And a lot of that is caught up in, there's such a narrative of, um, if you have caused me harm, I can't be in relationship with you. And that, that does not, we, it's such a powerless place to 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 act from because I'm never going to be able to promise anyone that I'm not going to cause harm, and I think I'm worth being in a relationship with regardless. So, um, you know, the both end of that, I guess. Yeah, thank you both for that. And um, I, I just wanted to say, I wonder if the podcast you were referencing is "How to Survive the End of the World" yeah. with yeah, Adrian Marie and Autumn Brown. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. That's one of my absolutely. I don't know if I'm, I'll try and find it. Yeah. And I'll let you know exactly what it was. Thank you. I'm, I, I, yeah, go oh, ahead, Michelle. I, I just wanted to add one thing to what Thomas said, and it was what you shared at the end about harm and relationship. One thing um, out of many that I really appreciated and loved about our collective, just family racism works as it, different people came in and out and it grew and we took on different roles in the work is that I felt like for the most part, we were committed to each other and we knew we were going to harm each. Like we knew we were going to hurt each other, step on each other, sometimes yell at each other, which didn't happen often actually, but like that we were conflict was going to arise. And I, the devotion we had to one another felt um, special in a way that feels tied to the, what was Timo was naming about the ego and part of what I see in collectives where uh, people doing this work is I'm not sure folks are committed to one another. Like if they're collaborating, like we had real deep, I'm, I'm in it with you. I don't know what, what created that other than time and, and deepening our relationship and making mistakes, but there was like a commitment to do that. And I think we need more of that. <laughs> If we're going to, and I feel like that wasn't just true to us. I think other collectives who worked in that way, we weren't on social media, like it was different. And so I think there was this way we were able to be in commitment and weren't as distracted by some other things going on and the way we just did the work and our principles and values, we always came back to. And I think there's something about the culture and how many distractions are present, plus the ego that perhaps tests that level of commitment that I feel we have for one another. To get also, there. It's also about, I think it's sort of living, this came to me uh, in a personal situation and then I, I saw how it applied in the larger situation, which is that somebody who had caused me a lot of pain kept saying, um, we're, we're, I'm doing the best I can, we're doing the best we can. And my response was, well, fuck you, the best you can. Excuse me, can I say that? No, you're totally fine, yeah. 
<laughs> fuck you the best you can sucks. And it's not, you know, and then I started thinking about, oh yeah, white people, we say a lot, we're doing the best we can and it's not good enough. And that is the reality that we are all navigating, right? So, and I, I don't, I think it requires a lot it require what it requires of those of us who are white is one thing, but are, you know we're not all required or need to do the same things. Um, one size does not fit all, and it's just the it's the setup of white supremacy. I think um, I know that's one of the few things I know that that's one of the setups of white supremacy. I am curious. I mean, I asked it kind of as a joke, and I'm glad you kept speaking, Tema, and shared your thought. Um, but I am curious, like. Because to me, I'll speak from my experience, part of my own awakening included, a, a, I think, a phase, I hope that it's over, of like being like, fuck you. Um, like, you're not doing good enough. So like, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. Or I don't know how to stay in relationship with you when you don't care to see um, or to awaken or to talk or to, to truth tell with me, right? Um, I, and I'm still learning, like, what is it? Where is the line? Like, what really, how do I, how do I stay? Do I stay? What does it look like to stay? I, I'm curious for both of you to speak to that, both like in your own process and in your relationships. It's kind of a vague question, but I see head nodding. So, yeah. Great. I think it's the question. It's one of the questions. And I think, um, I'll say a little bit and then I, I think that that first of all, ask the questions that you're asking the questions is that we should be asking those questions and not just making the decision to walk away. And that we do that in, in collective or in council. It's like, I don't decide that on my own. I'm just walking. It's like, I go to you, I go to Michelle, I go to people I trust and love say, here's the situation. Um, and I, you know, I have a friend who's been going through a huge discernment process about how to stay in community across lines of race. And, um, and they've been, I've just been watching them with awe because they have gone to uh, quite a few people to sort of say, uh, and not, a, not in a gossipy way at all. It's sort of like, this is my dilemma. This is, these are the things I'm trying to figure out. Help me to think about this so that they can act from a place of, an, of at least more integrity or more, um, and, and then make the decision, like I'm setting a boundary and that boundary can always come down if, and when you, you do some things that help to build trust. So um, I don't, there's not an, if I wish there was, if I could give you the five things to know, then I, of course, we, I would give them to you, but it's sort of like, this is a discernment I need to make. I need to make it with help. And then I need to, um, I need to, we need to not make a final decision about what's possible. Five years from now, I may be able to be in a relationship with you. 10 years from now, I may be able to. Next week, I may be able to. Things change. So um, not throwing like as Cynthia Brown, the my colleague, our colleague and and mentor and wise woman activist said, uh, literally on her deathbed, you know, do not throw anybody away. So I take that very seriously. Yeah, I was in a space the other day and called her into it and shared that and and bring her into space all the time because such a gift to be offered that medicine and wisdom and that's how Cynthia showed up in her life as far as I experienced and witnessed like consistently um in a culture that throws people away all the time so it was she was such a teacher for me in that way in many ways but that like struck me I was like what's going on 
in your heart over there that you are able to really, you say it and you actually mean it and you show it, right? Like that's a, I, that was such a gift. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think Tristan, I know we've talked some about this, like relationship and how to be in relationship across difference or how to be in relationship with people who are like you and who you think don't get it. Or when do we set boundaries when we're being hurt and experiencing harm? And um, is that a one-time thing when we experience harm? Is it ongoing? Is it a family relationship? Is it a friend or a romantic relationship? I mean, it's like, to Tim's point, it depends. It's, it's, um, it's not as, I, I know I described maybe something that sounded like a utopia around our collective, but like, it wasn't always easy. I do want to say that. And it took work. And I think we were just committed to doing the work. We also had a shared vision, which is not always the case in relationships. We were, we had a shared vision to disrupt racism and to work in community with people and to organize and to work to transform institutions and organizations and more, but like that, and I think to deepen our own consciousness and understood that we were practicing that with each other because we were working across lines of difference in our collective all of the time. Um, and, and in so many ways, modeling what we were trying to create and inspire people to live into. So um, I, that's, that feels important in collectives. You need, we need to have a shared vision and like remind ourselves of what that is over and over and have some principles around, around that, that we can come back to because those things really feel like anchors and they did in our collective for me, they did. Um, I also feel like in the era of cancel culture, um, I believed that Tema had something to teach me. And I believe Cynthia had something to teach me and Kenneth had something to teach me and Jess and Jonathan and Vivette and Keija had something. These are all people who were part of the collective over time, something to teach me. I don't always see that in really like this kind of relationship I'm talking about around a collaboration where there's also deep love and we have shared vision and principles. Um, I don't know that I always sort of was reverent about that, but I, I, I understood that I valued Tema. I valued all of the people I just named and they valued me. Um, and that feels like it's central to a relation. I mean, that's part of centering relationship, right? Is showing that everyone has something to contribute and I value what that is. And I might have feedback about it or maybe we want to do it in a different way. But it was never a question of like a lack of value for my friends and colleagues, which I see a lot of play out in spaces. Like which really causes a lot of dismay for me. Um, and then I finally, I think in relationship, like the kind of relationships I'm talking about, we, um, I came into the work and Tema and Kenneth and others had created a body of work. I came in and I learned that and, and trained in it. And um, then over time, the curriculum changed and we shared our work freely with people. There, and I'm naming this because um, there was, to me, it feels like a lack of ownership yeah. over like who created this and you did it. And I mean, we need to honor like where it came from, which is what we always ask people to do. And I'm clear that I didn't create the body of work that I was trained up in. I've just contributed to it over time because I brought myself into it um, with guidance and mentorship. And I feel like this, this ownership piece really trips up people and it also is part of conditioning and whiteness or or conditioning if we're more proximal to power like I created this right it's likely you didn't actually like someone taught you something you know or you went to some ex you experienced something and or you like read and it like 
transform what you thought, right? It raised your consciousness. There's something in our culture that's so like it maybe it is back to the ego that's so like I own, I created it, I owned it. I'm the first person who did this. I don't feel like we ever that I remember regarded our work in that way. I just and I feel like um it comes up in spaces across difference. It comes up in space that spaces where people feel like they're woke and they're performing. It comes up and like, I know better than you. Um, and I just think it's dangerous. Um, so I'm really speaking about the line of like, how do we honor where things come from, but also recognize that it's likely we learn these things from some other place. And that means we're part of a collective that's doing, who's doing this this work and practicing alongside us. And would that orientation support us in staying in in relationship and valuing people and and not as you know throwing people away as quickly as I see people do so that's not a clear answer to your question about like how do you do this it's just some things I learned along the way and a lot from our our collective this man DR works yeah you're you're reminding me that almost always without exception, whenever I had what I felt like an original brainstorm thought, like, oh, this is so brilliant. I would be reading something like by James Baldwin or, or you know, Dorothy Allison or something. And they would have, you know, I would read what I had just thought was my original thought. Oh, okay. Uh, so um, there's that. And I think along, along with what Michelle's saying, what I feel like I notice in space is that there seems to be this expectation that I'm not going to work with you unless you show up perfectly. Mm. You know, sometimes we wonder why our movement is, is struggling. And it, and I think it's, you know, I think about, I, I think the right has a much easier job. It's much easier to organize people around hate and fear. That's very easy to do. Um, and, and it's, for me, it's as simple as remembering how uh, the the day that two close friends and I realized that our friendship was really based on how much time we spent talking about how fucked up everybody else was. It was a huge aha moment for me. It's like, oh, my belonging, our belonging to each other is based on how our judgment of everybody else. And we've, we're still friends because we worked on shifting that dynamic. And, so, and, and I think so on our side, it's like, yeah, side on, on, on those of us who really are committed and believe and need and want um, justice, that there's this way in which you can join us. But before you join us, you have to know my pronouns. You have to know the right language to use. You have to know what racialized capitalism is. You have to know all the buzzwords. You have to, you have to act in this kind of way. You have to know your place. It's like, it's a miracle anybody wants to join us, right? Um, and again, I'm not saying that pronouns aren't important. I'm not saying that understanding how racialized capitalism isn't important. It's all it's the both end of it. It's like we we deserve to be seen and respected and 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 heard in our full humanity exactly as we are and as exactly as we claim ourselves to be. And it's going to take practice for those of us who are still learning what that is, which is most of us, right? It's most of us are not in touch with um, most of us don't have a lot of emotional intelligence. Almost none of our leaders do. Most of us are not in our bodies. Almost none of our leaders are. You know, it's like there, there's there's just this, and again, none of this is a mistake to me. Sort of white supremacy culture has stripped us all of our innate wisdom and our innate ability to sort of um, uh, be grounded in who we are. So it's, it's very much a both end. I want to know your pronouns. I want to respect your pronouns. I want you to know and respect mine. And if I mess up, I would 
love some grace around that. And if I mess up, you know, 10 times, um, I want you to hold my feet to the fire. And then at some point you do get to set a boundary, but, it, and it's a process and it's a practice. So I'm, I, I, I feel like I'm sounding, I feel like I may be coming across as trying to tell oppressed people how to behave, which is not what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to talk about um, that we need, uh, that we need grace with boundaries. We need boundaries with grace. Um, and, and that, that I'm never, I'm, I'm never going to show up perfectly. And so here's the other part. So on, 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 for, for me, for someone like me, um, who has a lot of, of, uh, um, culturally, uh, given privileges or advantages, uh, my, one of my deep practices has to not take everything so personally. Don't take anything personally. Like you're not happy. I'm here because I'm white. Okay. All right. Got it. And it's like, that's, you know, I, it's like, you don't want to hear what I have to say because I'm white and I'm old. Okay. All right. You know, it's like, I don't have to, it's not about me. It's not about me. So there's, you know, there's, there, there's work. Every, we all have our work to do. And for those of us in the white group, a lot of that is like, stop taking things so personally. This isn't about us, you know, let it go. Let it go. You don't, we don't need to be the center. We don't need to be the ones deciding things all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of work to go around. This is such a timely reminder for me. I just have to say, like, I'm, there are certain relationships I'm navigating at the moment. I'm like, ooh, this conversation was right on time. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate what you're both bringing up around boundaries. That comes up on this podcast so often because the boundaries, I think, in a lot of ways are what allow us to give people grace. Because um, my impression just from conversations and feedback we've gotten on different episodes before and the types of folks who tend to find Tristan's work or my work is they really struggle with boundaries and might tend to air, especially the white folks, especially cis folks, because they care about this work and they're seeking out support in it, tend to maybe err on the side of not having any or not having strong ones um, with folks. And then as a result, end up burned out, end up um, exiting maybe before the learning has happened. Um, I'll, I'll speak personally, like I have a lot of resentment to build up in cross-racial relationships that would have been prevented with some boundary <laughs> conversations years ago, you know? Um, and, and so I, I appreciate the nuance that you're bringing to the conversation around like harm and that we're all going to cause it. No one's perfect. And boundaries are fine. Like oftentimes boundaries are what allow the relationship to persist, even if temporarily you're going no contact with someone, for example. Um, so I'm just really grateful. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to say I'm grateful. <laughs> I need this today. Well, thank you, Lauren. Um, I'm glad this feels like it's right on time. I did want to say like some, in my experience, um, sometimes it's not always true but I only learn about what boundaries I need through the process of being in relationship with someone. There are times, like I've learned some things about boundaries. And so I, I'm, I might be able to identify what I need or I think I need, but that could change too, based on the conditions in place. And so I just think that's important what you name made me think about that. Like, and the grace at times is what allows me to stay in the relationship as I'm learning what boundaries I need to put in place. And 
just because Tim is a white bodied individual and I'm black doesn't mean I get to like um, hurt Tema, run over Tema's boundaries, not listen to Tema. Like for me, this may not be true for every black person because of this, this um, system, Tema, that you're talking about when you're talking about, don't take it personally. Like we're responding to the cultural conditions that are in place in a white supremacy system. So I'm not saying everyone needs to operate in this way. I'm just, it's, it's just my own learning of like, it, it doesn't give me a pass to treat people like shit because I'm experiencing oppression based on race. It just doesn't like, that's not how we're going to get there. And so that nuance feels important because I've seen that play out and like, I get to beat you up in the way I've been wounded. And I'm not going to do my own personal work or community work to take care of my, the wounds that I'm healing from and moving through. And I'm going to like throw up on you. And then I'm, I'm like, we're, <laughs> and then I'm going to leave or whatever it is, right? It's, I've seen it play out in so many ways. And so the, to me, personal responsibility is really complicated, but I do have some responsibility in my relationships to do my own work. So I'm not showing up in the messy way I just described. And then I'm learning about how to be in relationship and what boundaries I need. And if I can communicate those in some way, because it can't always, then I communicate them. And then that person can honor them or not. And I'll learn something through that. Um, so I just wanted to add that to the conversation. No, and then I would say that on, on, on the white side of things, it's like when, when and if people come at us um, in ways that, that don't feel uh, grounded or quote unquote justified, we have lots of options. And one option is just tell me more. No, we, we don't. Again, this is where we don't have to take it personally. It's like, OK, maybe your anger at this at this moment isn't really about me, but you're feeling it. Maybe I can you know, I, I'm actually not um, more and more. I feel like. You know, we're all all of us, all of us are in such are, are in varying levels of pain. There's a lot of pain in the world right now. And so. Um, and some of us know it and some of us don't. And so if we know that we're in pain, we have a little more capacity to hold our own and, and each other's because we at least know it. If we're not in pain, we're like often just acting out of it. Um, but and if I'm in a place where I I know I'm in pain and this is a person in pain, then then I can just I, I can witness it. And not and not make it about me. And again, I get to set. And this happened the other. This happened a couple of weeks ago when I went to facilitate a workshop about white supremacy culture. And the 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 people, mostly young, there were not happy with me and how I was showing up. And they weren't. But they weren't going to be happy with me before they even met me. And so, um, so part of the practice, I think, Michelle that you, you talk about that, that that has been helpful to me is in that moment to go, oh, this group has a lot of, is holding a lot of stuff that they have not been able to, to talk about. I'm the catalyst for it. Let me get out of the way and they can do what they need to do. And I didn't, I just, it was, it was pretty clear pretty early. Like there was not, I was just able to say, I'm not who you want or need. That's okay. I didn't apologize. I just said, that's okay. And just, got out, you know, we all figured out I should get out of the way. And that's what happened. And I, I don't, again, I'm, I realize sometimes I, I'm not telling this to, to demonstrate how evolved I am. I am saying this to, 
to, to demonstrate that with a lot of practice, I can sometimes get be in that space where I don't take it personally. And I can figure out that people are, have something that they need to do and, and whatever my role is. And sometimes it's getting out of the way, facilitate that to happen. Right. And so that's kind of part of the, when I hear Michelle talking about ego, it's like, this is a lot of this is not about us. And when I hear Michelle talk about the, the power of our group vision is that even when we didn't get along, we still did the work together because that the work was as important um, as the, our ability to get along. And I remember Suzanne, one of our collectives, when we were when we weren't getting along, I went to her and I said, another white woman. Um, I said, "What are we doing? You know, we're we say we're we're a dismantling racism group. We have all these dynamics." And she said, "Well, we could wait until we have it figured out, which means we would never ever do any work ever." Or we could just keep working while we're, you know, while we're figuring it out. And that was such deep wisdom. I tell that story all the time because it's such deep wisdom. Um, so, yeah. I have, I'm like, we could, I hear people on podcasts being like, I could talk to you forever, but like, could we just spend all day? And also I want to respect your time. <laughs> and there's so many places we could go um, in our remaining time. I, I do want to hear, especially given some of what's been raised, like, Tema, how do you hold the, the, the crediting of the characteristics of white supremacy culture article and the fact that it feels like it's, especially in the last two to three years, become more of a popularized resource? Um, like, how do you hold the nuance of like your name being on that? And obviously, you know, at the top, there's a whole list of names, including Michelle's, including Kenneth's. But like, I, yeah, can you speak to that? Like the evolution of that? Like, also, how did you how did you all do it? Like, how did you all see like these are the themes we see playing out? And this is this is like the list, you know? Well, that's explained on the website too. So the, one of the reasons for the website is because the article was being used a lot. It was very old. It needed revision and updating. Um, and so when I when I started to really sit down and think about it, I realized that at the time that the article was written, I had been working with Kenneth already for six or seven years. So Kenneth and I um, are the ones that sort of... Uh, Kenneth had been doing anti-racism work out of the Peace Development Fund in the Northeast, and I'd been doing it out of grassroots leadership in the South. And we got together and put our curriculums together. And he was he was a little bit older. He was definitely my mentor and um, and colleague for 12 years until he died way too soon in 2004. And so we'd been working together for a long time. And I, I'd had the, the work, um, we were doing a lot of work on the West Coast. I'd gone to a People's Institute workshop where Daniel Buford had given an incredible talk about linguistic racism. I'd been going to the Challenging White Supremacy workshops that Sharon Martinez had was sponsoring in the Bay Area. And my memory is that I went to some kind of meeting where all that dysfunction was happening. And I came home in a rage and I sat in front of the computer and it came through me onto the computer. It was not, I didn't research it. I didn't sit down. It just came through me. That, and that's why I think it's powerful. It's like, it's what Michelle was saying about, um, there's nothing original on there. It's not, uh, it's not, um, my name is on it mostly so people can find me if they have something they want to ask or they want to, it's, it's not, I invented what's, you know, it's like, there's nothing about that. Um, and Daniel Buford needs to be credited as he is. Sharon needs to be credited as she is. All those people 
everybody. And there, that's why there's a whole page of all the ways that people are, are taking it and using it. And again, to Michelle's point, it's not copyrighted. It's that people are free to use it and change it. And people are going to abuse that. And people do. You know, it's a tool like any tool. Like, and there, So one of the things that needed to be added was a whole section on please don't weaponize this list. Um, and I have a lot of stories I could tell about how people do that. So, um, yeah, I think it's just I was uh, I was at the computer when spirit or source chose to move through me move the words through me. Sharon's the one who said you can't talk about characteristics without offering antidotes. So I added those. And then over the years, as a, and then we just put it in our workbook. It just became a tool in our workbook. And then, then the internet, Al Gore invented the internet. And somebody took it out of the workbook and put it on the internet and started circulating. And then when George Floyd was murdered, it got a lot of resurgence. And then I said, I've got to revise it. Um, and and so, I, I, again, I, the point of having my name on it is so that people understand there's a lens through which it's being offered and then can take or leave it based on that lens. But it's certainly not about when, when it first got circulated because it came out of the workbook, Kenneth's name was on it. And he got really angry with me and he said, you need to take my name off of that. I had nothing to do with this. And I said, Kenneth, you know, all of our work is collective. I don't care. You take my name off of it. He was he was so angry. And he never gets angry. So he scared me. Um, and he's my elder. So I so I took his name off of it. But luckily enough, it was circulating already. So it still has his name on it, which I, I love. So <laughs> he has he had limited power in that sense. Mm. Michelle, do you have anything to add about that resource and your relationship to it? Um, I. Uh, nothing other than to say that it is, to your point, used so much. Like I see it everywhere. Um, it comes up in conversations, obviously use it in my work. And um, love how you described about what you described about how it just moved through you like a channel. And the clarification around, um, you know, I'm offering this through my my lens. I don't, I think sometimes with tools or resources or articles, people don't always remember there's like someone or a few people who wrote this and they have social locations that may be different than yours and they've been conditioned in this way and that will shape how they talk about a certain thing or present something. And so that may have felt small to you. And I feel like it's a helpful reminder for people as they're working with it. Um, and the openness with which you're like, you know, people can feel how they want to feel about it. Um, they can work with it. They can leave it. They can, but I know it's informed so many organizations, institutions, communities who are working to disrupt how white supremacy shows up and the toxicity inherent in it. Any, it's oh, go one, ahead, Tema. It's just one way to give something um, language and definition that helps people get one kind of a grasp on it. That's all, you know, it's, it's, um, Again, many, many people have written about white supremacy culture uh, way before this article ever came out. And so it's just one way, one way to sort of like, and because it's a list, you know, people like lists and um, it can be helpful in that way. Yeah, I worry even for myself, the way in which I relate to it as a, as a list and as a list of do nots and therefore put it into very black and white thinking, like I'm getting it quote right 
in my work, in, <laughs> in my practice, um, if I don't do these things as if it's that like linear and narrow. Um, and I'm just really in this moment reflecting on the question of, of what does it look like to not do that, to not, <laughs> I mean, I hear you use the phrase weaponized, and I think that can be done in a whole slew of different ways in relationship to this resource and this tool and framework. And I'm also thinking about the way in which I might be using it and replicating white supremacy culture while convincing myself that I'm challenging it right through these anti-practices. Yeah. Black and white thinking. I yes. Know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do yeah. yeah. One of the things I like to say, I'm starting to say more and more as the world is on fire is that um, when I think about whiteness at all, I don't think whiteness offers anything at all to anybody, to any of us in the white group. It offers some of us like way more material crapola than any of us should have. Um, so certainly the white group has benefited materially or financially in some kind of way by being white. But the price of that is, is if we are at all in touch with it, is not in the least bit worth it. And there's so if if I think about these these characteristics, the rather than a list to me, it's sort of like it's more these are the ways in which white supremacy um, gets in my body and gets in my in my way of thinking and disconnects me from myself. And um, and so when we say when we say that that white supremacy and racism harm all of us, I think about as a white person, you know, any kind of uh, when I'm acting out of perfectionism or when I um, engage in either or thinking or when I think I know the, the right way, I have um, immediately, I have I have started participating in something that takes me away from myself um, and and keeps me uh, in the word, in the language of La Mirada Owens, keeps me from being free. I want to be free. I want to be happy and I want to be free. And I can't be happy or free by myself. And so to me, being happy or free means that I am I can catch my conditioned thinking and my conditioned behavior and do something else. That's what it means. And so that's what this list or this any kind of description is in service of. It's like helping me identify some things I, I can do to be free. Mm. And that's how I tend to think about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that freedom isn't an individual experience. Yeah. yeah. I can't be free by myself. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a lot of fun. Mm. And I can't know about my conditioning by myself either. I think about, I've been sitting here thinking about, you know, it's been a while since Michelle and I worked together on a regular basis. And one of the beautiful things about working with Michelle is that she is always, she has this gift of clarity about what's going on either in the dynamic between us, either in a group uh, with herself. And um, I never had to, I never had to second guess what she was thinking because she would tell me. And, and she can be clear and loving at the same time, which is an incredible, not many people have that gift. That's a very incredible gift to have. Um, so I never felt like she was coming after me and she was completely clear, like, no, or yes, or, you know, whatever it is that she had to share. And I could, I could return, I could say, well, actually, I see it this way. So you know, it was a very, um, uh, Michelle offered the gift of, be, of being in relationship in a very, um, equals not the right word, but a very 
parallel. I don't know what the, what the word is. I, we were on we were on the same ground, um, and it and it's that's pretty unusual in my experience. Either people will concede to me because I'm older and I've been doing this longer, or they'll be um, for whatever reason, just you know, thinking I, I'll decide I'm not. I don't have anything to offer because I'm white and older. I mean, work both ways currently. Um, so you know, but to be to meet someone who's going to meet me, going to going to to offer themselves or show up in a way that doesn't demand. That's not the right word, but says, "Meet me where I am, and then I can meet you where you are." That's a really wonderful thing. Hmm. Thank you, Tema. I love you. I, I think that's um, love is part of that, like how I want to show up in relationship and be in a practice of centering love. Yeah. And my mother is probably responsible for the other part of that and her um, communication and raising me and nurturing me and communicating and like steadfastness. Like my mom loves me so deeply and is clear and so she just modeled that which I know everyone doesn't receive that gift but she modeled that consistently for a long time she still does um and that is yeah I think that really taught me how to be in relationship and meet people where they are and and ask that they meet me where where I am and the boundaries and the grace and the practice and being in it together and a de detachment, um, this is my Aquarius moon, the like, I can say the thing and still love you and I'm not all caught up in it, you know, like that, yes. that feels very Aquarius, like to me of, um, I, I'm in relationship with you and I'm connected, but I'm not like wrapped up in all of the, like, we can move through this. I trust us enough to do this or okay. I'm not going to get so wrapped up that I've, that I can't be in this with you. So right. thank you for, for saying that. The other part of it, I was thinking today, I, I wrote a letter um, to some people I've been working with where I spoke some truth that's hard to hear. And I think that the other the other thing that those of us in the white group can really work on is um, is understanding what a gift truth telling is. You know, even if we don't agree with it. And in, in the end, each of us gets to decide what we do and don't agree with. But when somebody offers their truth to us, um, either, uh, you know, whatever their race to be able to to say oh and 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 before and to notice if we're defending against it go oh, i'm defending against it can we take a breath and then go okay what does this have to offer what's the gift in this because some of the greatest gifts i've gotten from people are people who had the courage to tell me the truth about how i was showing up and although i didn't like to hear it at first i can remember one in particular uh, when my boss gave me some feedback about how I was showing up and I hung up the phone. Um, in the end, when I really thought about what he said, I realized how what he said was so true. He talked about my critical thinking and that I was, uh, all I was doing, all I ever did was point out what was wrong mm. that brought down the morale of a group. And I had no idea I was doing that. I thought that's what a person did. I didn't know it was a, I didn't know it was a skill I could choose to use. I thought it was a way of life. Like my job in life is to point out all the things that are wrong. And I started thinking about how I lived in my head where all my head, all my brain did was notice what was wrong. Oh, what a terrible way to live. You know, so I didn't like hearing it because I heard it as shaming and blaming me for who I was, which is not what it was. Um, and when I was actually able to take it in, it changed my life. 
It changed my life. And if somebody had, if he hadn't, I was in my 30s when he told me that. You know, what if I had been in my 60s when somebody told me that? Oh my gosh. So to to to, to make some room to actually hear what people are saying and to consider what might be that there's some truth in it, um, just this it, it, in the end will really again be part of what sets us free. And always I, knowing that at the end I get to decide. Actually, I don't agree with that assessment. So I mean, I can always decide that. But it, but before I decide that, let me consider how it might be true. I think that's one of your gifts. You were talking about a gift I have around clarity and meeting folks. And one of your many gifts is re is receiving or noticing when you're not receiving the feedback and processing that. And I need a minute um, and listening. Right, that feels so. Um, there's Jasper. Jasper might bark for a minute, everybody. But I just think that the way one reason I was able to meet you, why I was able to meet you, is because you were like listening and available to receive the feedback and would speak about when you felt like you were defending or would reflect on that and then come back to me. Like that feels like how we part of what we need to practice to stay in relationship with one another, especially across difference. Yeah. Um, so there was that sort of openness and, and they, the gifts that we were talking about, they feel connected to me in that way. Yeah. Anything, any final, like final, what does that even mean? Final for this conversation in this zoom space, any final things to say, offer, ask from either of you? The silence is our contemplation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. I was thinking about um, love, and we've talked about it a little bit through how we talk about it, how we how we practice. And when I interviewed you, Tema, on finding refuge, you talked about love and and centering love. And you know, when you first started doing this kind of work, that wasn't we're organizing work, people weren't talking about love. And I would say when I first started doing it, I didn't hear, like we weren't centering love. And so I would just remind people about like so much of what we've talked about and the way we've talked about it here on this podcast is from a place of love and like deep respect for one another and, and the, um, and like reverence connected to that we get to do this work or be part of a legacy, right? Of people who've done this kind of disruption for such a long time. So inviting people into that place of love. And Tema, I have a piece of art from you that's right above my desk that says, remember to love today. It means two different, it's like, remember to love today. Um, remember to love today, it's a collage you made. And um, it sits there because I wanna remember that and want that to be part of how I, what informs me around how I show up and, and practice with folks. So I'd invite folks to think about the role of love in this, that, that it has to be centered. Otherwise, I don't know what we're doing, actually. Yeah. Um, before, the, before we started the podcast, uh, the two of you asked um, what we think about the future and uh, if we're hopeful or what our feelings are about that. And um, uh, I sort of follow Pema Chodron's model. She's a Buddhist... Um, teacher and she talks about the art of hopelessness because um, if we're hopeful then it means we're not able to be present because we're projecting something 
Um, but I, I'm also not hopeless. I I am in a in a I am in a huge space of not knowing. I don't know, and it's very. I don't know how we're going to get out of this mess. We're in a big, big, hot mess, and um, I don't know how we're going to get out of it. And that didn't that wasn't always true. As a younger activist, I thought I knew how we were going to get out of it, and I was. Um, uh, and there was nothing wrong with that either. I was fervent in my beliefs, um, and I just was disappointed time and again um, as what what I was uh, hoping for and fighting for was not coming into fruition. So, um, so I, I would say my position these days is that that we're in a big hot mess, and that um, we're in a big hot mess because because this. Um, preference of profit over people and land over connection is, is really um, messed up the way that we think about things and the way that we operate. And so to me, uh, it's just in some ways an imperative to love. It's like that that when I when I meditate or when I sort of ask ask the question, because I, I like to sort of ask my version of God or the energy field, like what is my role now? What is my role now? And, and the, the the answer is pretty consistently, like just, like I said in the beginning, like just keep showing up in love. And it's because to me, I think that um, the world is so uh, hate-filled and fear-filled and fear-driven right now that the more spaces that we can create where um, the grounding is love, I think the more chance we have to move through this <clears throat> together and in some kind of way that's going to bring us bring us out uh, into ways of being that that I mean my vision is one where we we center caring for each other where caring for each other is the most important thing caring for each other for the water for the earth for the like care is the center not capital care and um, and so and I think a lot of us want that. I'm not alone in that. And a lot of us want that. So uh, my mother, um, after she died, she came to me and she gave me four instructions. And one of them was find the others. And so I, I feel like that's mm -hmm. what we like. Find, find the others, find all of us, find all the folks who really want to center caring. And there are a lot of us out there and we're across the globe. And um, so that's my vision of the future is just to keep looking for people who want to do that. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Find the others. That's a good place to leave it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, not to um, too abruptly depart on what we were just talking about, but I just feel like everyone needs to see <laughs> what's oh. going on on my desk right now. Um, Patreon folks will be able to see it, but there is a little snuggly Fiona kitty um, who I think was getting cold. And I, I also... Feeling the love. Yes, feeling the love, feeling and spreading the love. That's yep. what I was going to say. I I think she probably felt some resonance of of goodness with this conversation. She usually doesn't do this. This is I usually have to force her to let me hold her, <laughs> so <laughs> to pick her up and make her realize it's nice. Um. So oh, now she's getting spicy again. <laughs> but, um. Yeah, I I just appreciate you both so much. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to share this conversation with us today. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thank you so much. Death, 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 death is a penalty.
Thanks for listening to this episode of All the Fuck In. If you like what we're doing, we'd love if you'd subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and review. This helps other folks find us. You can learn more at alltfinpodcast.com. That's A-L-L-T-F-I-N podcast.com. And on Instagram at alltfinpodcast or at Tristan Katz Creative, or and at Lauren K. Roberts.